So with the war and the bootleggers and their night driving down from Canada, the old suicide at the Red Mill drifted off into the misty land of myth and wonder. Some got it wrong and told that Johnny had shot himself. Some said he had taken a poison available to doctors. Some said he had simply disappeared, deserted his wife and child. And in any event, the little woman who remained behind was a fine person with a lot of guts to stay there and turn the place into a kind of roadhouse. Folks from Herndon, the Tony crowd wore rich, would roar down the highway in Mercers and Stutzes and stop at the bootleggers' places and then have chicken at the place called the Red Mill. Did something with the batter on the chicken, and let me tell you. Of course, you could have the steak if you wanted, and there were stacks of hot biscuits to melt in your mouth and wilted lettuce salad. She made the coffee fresh when you came in so it wasn't sitting around in those big urns like at other places. And then afterwards, if you wanted to dance, there was a player piano, all the old ones, just like a gypsy and Joan of Arc and the rest of the war tunes, but who wants to think about that? The boy, her boy, waits tables. But she comes in and asks if all is to your liking, and everything always is. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Lit to Lens podcast, a safe place for folks who like the movie more than the book. We're recording this episode on Monday, January 7th, 2022, which also happens to be Martin Luther King Jr.'s day here in the United States. Um, and today we are discussing the power of the dog. Uh, with me to talk about the adaptation is a gubernatorial, seldom ablutionary, and the dipsomaniacal man himself, Mr. Eric. Hello, Mr. Eric, how are you? I'm doing well. Well, I didn't realize you were studying for the SAT. Yes, I decided to retake it because, well, what else do I have to do? in my day now that we're in covid i have heard of uh like a as a fantasy football punishment some people have to retake the sat or like the act or one of those standardized tests as punishment that's horrible yeah i would not want to do that no i barely took the sat once i like took like two practice tests and then did it live and look at me now i made it through college you did congratulations yeah (laughs) i like those words though um i don't know what the second two mean i know gubernatorial relates to being a governor yes it does gubernatorial is like doing governor governor duties um seldom is seldom it's like rare and then ablutionary or to ablution yourself is to wash yourself i don't like that so you rarely wash yourself i don't like how that's phrased and then dipsomaniacal or let me pull up google definitions here is alcoholism Specifically in form characterized by intermittent bouts of craving for alcohol. So, huh. so I was dipsomaniacal in April of 2020, much like the rest of the <laughs> world. That's true. <laughs> That's true. But the, all these words came from the book. So it was interesting to read about all these different words. And I thought, these are great words to describe Eric. You know, not all of them are true. Only at certain times, they may have been true. I am drinking water currently, so... <laughs> Are you sure it's water? Well, you're not Are sure. Are we sure? <laughs> um, so we want to talk about the adaptation here, of course, being on the Litons podcast. Um, so the book is called The Power of the Dog, written by Thomas Savage and originally published in 1967. So a long, long time ago. And uh, the movie premier- premiered at the 78th Venice International Film Festival in September 2021. Uh, and the most released uh, on Netflix in the United States on December 1st, 
2021. So it was written and directed by Jane Campion, who is most famous for The Piano, which came out in the early 90s, uh, where she won a Best Original Screenplay and was also nominated for Best Director. Um, the film stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, and Cody Smith-McPhee. Rotten Tomatoes score of 94% with a Metacritic score of 89. Eric, what do you think? I think this is a great collection of names for like the top build actors, like Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, Cody Smith-McPhee. They're it's all... Just like, they're all tongue twisting and they're all actor names like they're very much like i don't know anybody named kirsten maybe jesse plemons is the most normal yeah I don't know anybody named benedict nobody named cody Co- k-o-d-i yeah yeah so five out of five ten out of ten for, for the names <laughs> can you give us a quick recap Yeah, The Power of the Dog is a familial drama set in Montana in 1925. The Burbank brothers, Phil and George, are wealthy cattle ranchers who live together in a relatively insular existence. One day, the quiet and thoughtful George meets the recently widowed Rose Gordon, and the two quickly marry. Phil, the brother, is distraught and works tirelessly to make Rose's new life at the Burbank ranch a living hell including harassing her son, Peter, who we learn is gay. Uh, themes of love, repression, and the natural world feature prominently. Wow, spoiler alert. What, the natural Peter's, world? <laughs> Peter's gay? You know, it's kind of, it's never outright said, right, in the book. It's just like, it, that's... It's sort of insinuated. Yeah, and we're sort of taking that to be the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, you know... In 1925, if you made roses out of paper, that was obvious. Everyone, yeah, everyone could tell that you were. That's dead. a pretty big signal, especially back then. Oh, it's so. like not. That's the thing, though. It's like very. <laughs> it's just like, oh yeah, this guy makes roses out of paper, and he wants to be a doctor. So yeah, definitely. Right. What the fuck? Yeah. Um, so anyway, that is Power of the Dog. Yep. And it is uh, available at your local library. Yes, it is, and it's also available for streaming. So, Eric, we are going to play. A quick game, which I know you've played before, and I think you actually lost last time. I think I'm correct in saying that. I think I'm in a tailspin. I don't think I've won in quite some time. It's Yeah, this one is more of a layup. I think this one you'll definitely get. So for the listeners who don't know and have never heard of this game before, it's called Two Truths and One Lie. Um, there are going to be two truths, and then there's going to be one lie. So it's pretty self-explanatory. Eric, number one, are you ready? Do it. Send it. The, uh, the director of the film, Jane Campion, is a Kiwi. Does that mean like the fruit or does that mean like from New Zealand? New Zealand. Got it. Nice pronunciation. I like it. Her accent. Uh, number two, Thomas Savage's wife, Elizabeth Fitzgerald, knew about her husband's sexuality before marrying him in 1939. And then number three, Benedict Cumberbatch was very apologetic to Kirsten Dunst and other actors after filming their scenes together because of the guilt he felt while playing his character, Phil Burbank. Eric, what do you think? Well, the the thing about this movie is that it was filmed in New Zealand and they took New Zealand for the American West, which may or may not look like Montana. I have never been to either. I can't say one way or the other. Um, but I think she is a Kiwi, not the fruit uh, person. Of course. Yes. Um, I, you can understand why Benedict Cumberbatch would apologize to all of his scene partners after scenes with him because he is uh, 
loud and mean and somewhat aggressive. Um, and that probably could make people scared of him. And I must, it must be an interesting thing as an actor to go to that level and then be a real person. Like when you say cut, it's -hmm. not like the Jared Leto method of acting where you're just always Paolo Gucci talking about, (laughs) you know, loafers or whatever right Mm -hmm. like at some point you have to turn it off and then you're just like oh me normal person sorry about yeah yeah. you know (laughs) uh making your life hell and then i do think that i think i was reading that this book is somewhat autobiographical for Mm -hmm. um thomas savage the the author so i think he might might have been gay and the 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 your one in three statements i think are probably true so i'm gonna say Oh, I'm looking for the lie. No, yes. Okay. So I think the lie is the second one that he may well have been gay, but she uh, did not know before marrying him. Because if she did, she might not have done it. <clears throat> I'm sorry to say that you were incorrect. Oh, God. You know, I really wanted you to win this one, Eric, but uh, you did not. So the lie was number three. So or, uh, Jane Campion is in fact a Kiwi. She is from New Zealand. Uh, and... Number two, Elizabeth Fitzgerald, the wife of Thomas Savage, did in fact know of his homosexuality before marrying him in 1939. And then I believe um, he started to come out more publicly as homosexual in 1950, which is still, like, you know, at that time was probably pretty controversial. Um, So, yeah. So, actually, uh, what I read on IMDb for the trivia section, of course, was that Kirsten Dunst and Benedict Cumberbatch were so into their characters that that they did not speak to each other during filming. Wow. So that must have been, like, an even weirder experience for them. Um, you know, uh, another thing that I found out is that Jesse Plemons is actually married to Kirsten Dunst. But I feel yeah. like you probably knew that. I knew that. Are they, okay. are they, are they married or are they, like, life partners? Uh, good question. Um, These are, are the things that... A couple off screen and have two sons together. So, yeah, then maybe they're not married married. Yeah. These are the things about the Hollywood people. They don't always put a ring on it. They just... Uh, yeah financially they're they're life partners yeah yeah that's why you have to consciously uncouple because you're not actually married you can do that when you are married (laughs) you have to get divorced but if you're not married you can just uncouple and it's fine yeah you just say all right i'll see you later yeah (laughs) i don't know if you knew that i wanted to no i didn't that's good that's good to know though um so that is that you have lost um two in a row at least probably more but it's all right i mean you know you're down the dumps, but you can always pick yourself back up, I think. It, there's always next time. And that is, uh, you've got to take solace in that. you, you got to be true. like a closer and have a short memory. There you go. There you go. Okay, some, some wisdom from Eric as we exit this, this section. And we're going to take a quick commercial break. This episode of the Little Lens Podcast is brought to you by the American Association of Poison Control Centers. If you or a loved one has braided an anthrax-infected leather rope With any open cuts or lacerations on your hands, call your local poison center now. Treatment is available. Don't let your brother's stepson get away with a tidy murder. Get that infection taken care of. The American Association of Poison Control Centers. Don't let your repressed sexuality die with you. And we are back. Thank you for that brief word from our sponsor, whoever that is, because Eric hasn't recorded it yet, but we're going to find out. It's going to be a little surprise. Yeah. I'm a I'm the business end of this company, Mark. Like, call him back to social network. Mm-hmm. I'm the CFO, so I handle all the the finances and the the ad sales now. So, 
It's a, it's gonna be a bit of a surprise. Are we still sp- uh, sponsored by Saab, or has that contract um, not been renewed yet? No, you know every episode, I'm trying to th- thematically link the ad to uh, what we're talking about, and that way the advertiser gets the best bang for their buck. That's true. There were no Saabs in the early 1900s, so no, that's fair. Yeah, it could be sponsored by horses, but you know it's a uh, individual horses. Yeah, horses don't really have their own capital, so. Yeah. And apologies for uh, my dog, Roxy, who is whining because she wants to go outside, but that's too bad. It fits into the episode because it's the power of the dog and it's... uh, Wow. Yeah. We're dog dog people here. We are dog people. So so, uh, this section, we're going to talk about the literature, the book, which was obviously written by Thomas Savage, like we mentioned before, published in 1967 um, and was not... Um, a super popular book, uh, but it was very well received when it came out. And um, Eric, I want to ask you a few questions on the adaptation as well as the book. And uh, full disclosure, everybody here, I only got 66% of the way through um, because it was not my favorite. So we will be relying heavily on Eric today. Eric, are you ready? I'm ready. This is the the Western. It's not Will's domain. It's it's, it's the exact opposite. (laughs) I'm an Eastern guy. So, Eric, why adapt something like this into cinematic form? Yeah, I mean, based on what you just said, you know, this is sort of a overlooked, maybe even forgotten um, book from the late 60s. Certainly compared to our last two episodes, Drive My Car, you know, written by Murakami, a very famous writer, and Dune, which is, you know, the sci-fi book. Yep. It might be interesting to think, like, why is this book in the Oscar mm-hmm. race? And I think it's an interesting question because it's like this book is probably not knocking down Hollywood's door. Mm-hmm. Um, in the version I read, there was an afterword by Annie Prue who mm-hmm. wrote Brokeback Mountain. And I think she is um, primarily responsible for like the re-release that happened in the early 2000s and getting it um, some additional like readership, love, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting. Um, if you... If you should read the afterword at least because it's it's good. She's a good writer, uh, and I just learned how to say her name. It's it's like P R O U L X, but I think it's Pru, pronounced Pru. Oh, is it okay? It's probably like French Canadian or something. Yeah. So Eric learned just so, something right there. Well, there you go. Fun fact: uh, actually met her at a uh, the National Book Event thing, whatever it is here in DC. I didn't meet her, but my mom went to go sign like whatever book she had coming out. Um, and I was within a few feet of her, so not to brag, but dang, you should have saved that anecdote for the Brokeback Mountain episode that we're gonna yeah eventually do. <laughs> that'll be up next. Yeah. <laughs> um, however, like you know, this book maybe not super successful, but you can I think just see this movie right as you read. You can see yeah. the snow capped mountains of Montana. You can see cattle ranchers on horseback. Um, you can see the dogs chasing after the the cows. Mm-hmm. It's just like a it's cinem- cinematography porn. Plus, yes, like, you know, the outfits, the kind of, like, gruff male, um, the loner male, you know, set against a, a big sky. Like, all that stuff you can see. And I think when you're looking to make a movie, being able to see it is is a big part of what might lead you to, to option this book to make this book. Um, in addition, I think there's something fairly compelling about Phil Burbank, who is played by Benedict Cumberbatch in the film. Um, 
I don't want to give too much away. We've hinted at it. And if you've seen the movie, you know, you should see the movie if you haven't. But um, he's this character who, who upends certain stereotypes we might hold for a person at this time and in this profession. And I think as even today, like as society reconsiders what masculinity is, um, I would definitely say Power of the Dog is an interesting addition to you know, the italicized quote-unquote discourse that exists. Um, so for those reasons, I think it's 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 still relevant, right? Because despite it's coming out in the 1960s, we are still trying to figure out, like, what to do about men who aren't, like, who don't meet historical standards of maleness. And uh, for those reasons, I think it, it it's like, it creates an interesting dialogue, for sure. For sure. I would even argue that it's actually more um, timely now than it was back then. Right when this came out, I mean, you certainly couldn't make a movie about this story back in the 60s or 70s. Um, and maybe the 80s, you probably could start doing stuff like that. But, you know, nowadays, obviously with Brokeback Mountain sort of, you know, breaking the mold, like this is a more accepted and, and celebrated story. So I think even in like the 1960s, you couldn't show men and women like sleeping in the same bed, even if they were married. Like there's, I mean, the whole like, there's, you know, other places to learn about the history of Hollywood, but like the, just like what you could and couldn't show relationship wise Mm -hmm. on the screen is like, is crazy now. I mean, 2021, 2022, Jesus, what year is it? (laughs) We live in a time of like where everything is a lot more open than it used to be, but still there are, you know, big segments of the population who wouldn't feel the same. And I I do think this book tries to put forth an interesting idea. Mm -hmm. um, Even if the ending is challenging, you know, Mm Mm-hmm. So for those bit. reasons, I think this it, it makes it makes sense for it to come out now. I think there's there's still a lot of good stuff people can learn. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if um, you know the western is sort of something that's like a classic of Hollywood, um, and has been certainly done recently. But I feel like there's probably only really maybe one western a year, maybe two. Like it's not as big as it used to be, but it's still relevant uh, in today's culture and is still. You know, they still make them. Yeah, for sure. I want to talk about that a little bit later. But um, certainly, like, Yellowstone is one of the most popular TV shows. Mm. There's another Western this year called The Harder They Fall. Um, Mm. You know, that Taylor Sheridan basically just, like, makes Westerns that people will watch. That's Yellowstone. That's 1883. Hell Mm. or High Water that came out in, like, 2015. There's a a lot more now. And obviously this movie... um, I don't want to say too much about it because I have a whole section coming up, but yeah, I mean, it's a yeah. Westerns are back question mark. I don't know. <laughs> so, um, which parts of the book were you specifically uh, most excited to see adapted? Uh, two things for me. One, I think, uh, there is a question of how to handle Phil Burbank as a, you know, on-screen presence. He is this like complete asshole who inspires fear among his men who inspires fear uh in rose who is george's new wife he basically forces he doesn't force her he he creates a uh drinking problem i forget the word you used your your 10 cent word at the beginning of this dipso 
maniacal. Yeah, he creates a dipsomaniac. A, a dipsomaniac um, through his craziness. Um, in short, he, I mean, he's the worst, right? But as we learn more about him, there is this subtext that colors how we might feel about him. And it is, like, all caps, subtext. Like, I, I do think you could read this book and not figure it out. So my question is, like, what do you do with that? There are questions as to whether, like, do you, like, you know, we have to film this movie, right? So we have to show things. We can't just have him remember things. Or if we do, those things have to be visual. So um, how do you, how do you create subtext visually is a, is a question for this movie? Or do you just literalize the, like, feelings, urges, even like the real history that he shared with um, a certain man that we'll talk about later. Mm-hmm. Next, I was fairly curious how they would handle uh, the death of John Gordon. And this is something that we'll talk about later too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he and Rose, through the first quarter of the book, have their love story. Um, they meet each other and meet cute, buy an inn, <laughs> create a life together. Mm-hmm. And then one day, a group of cowboys who, it's not said, but I think is fairly clear, are the Burbanks, and they're like crew of cattle folk, mm-hmm. um, visit the inn and haze John because Peter, his son, is gay, right? A like, sissy boar. Yeah. Um, and because of it, John stands up for himself. It's not said it's Phil, but I think mm-hmm. we take it to be Phil, beats him up. And it, like, injures his pride. It actually forces him to (laughs) have a drinking problem. And for the next year, he just kind of, like, deteriorates before he eventually hangs himself and commits suicide. And I thought, like, in the movie... So when that happens, Rose and Peter are not there, right? So Rose wouldn't know necessarily through seeing it that Phil killed her husband. Um, but I, I was interested to, to wonder if like that was going to be a reveal, like Rose obviously joins the Burbank crew by marrying George. Um, but, but there's this like very elemental part of her life that has been totally ruined by Phil. So is it like, is that a reveal to have Rose see that like evil is, you know, living right next door to her or whatever? Like, when is that, when do we learn that? Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get into what they actually do with John, but I was just like, he lives for a year and he never, he, he doesn't say anything about like who beat him up that night or like why he's feeling like this or what this person did to him. He doesn't tell Rose anything about Phil. He doesn't tell Peter anything about Phil. Like he's just hiding this secret until he, you know, becomes depressed enough to commit suicide. So I was, I was curious if they were going to, how, how they were going to handle that. Because once you see, I think, Benedict Cumberbatch, like, beating this man up and effectively, like, killing him, you know, I don't know what you do with that as a movie. Yeah, I mean, where do you really go from there, right? Right. It it does a lot to uh, Phil Burbank to have him be a murderer, in addition to an asshole. So, that was two for me. And third, I, I wanted to see some damn mountains, you know? <laughs> I live in a flat part of the country. We have hills here. We don't have mountains. I want to see some mountains. I want to see some snow cap stuff. I just want to see some cowboys with their cowboy hats and their boots, riding horses, you know, whipping cattle, making them go into their pens, feeding them, 
you know Hell I yeah. want to see um uh cow castration you know all of it show me all of it <laughs> make make it make the make it stink make it feel like we're outside in the elements and we got to raise these cattle just to slaughter them to to make our money to live the next day so just a, a clarification um where for John Gordon when he is sort of harassed by someone, an unnamed person in, in the bar for making fun of his son. Uh, and I think he's thrown against the wall and, and maybe beaten up or something. But I th- it actually is mentioned later that it was George Burbank and not Phil. Um, so the, the quote is, or from the, from the story, had Johnny Gordon told her who'd torn his shirt and toss him like a knotted rag against the wall, Rose would never have accepted George Burbank. At this point, George and her are, this is page 87. I think they just started to get together. Yeah. But even that though is like, it isn't said. Like it's said that she wouldn't take George, but I don't know that that necessarily means it was George. It could have been George. That's fair. Um, If he'd known it was, if she'd known it was Phil, it's still the guilt of association. So that's possible. Right. And it it seems like somewhat out of George's character because he's pretty... Um, quiet and yeah, lame and nice. It definitely seems more within Phil's character for sure. Yeah, he's a bully. Yeah, but like, how do you marry into that family if you know that the brother or even George himself like killed your first husband? I don't. That would be yeah, be a little difficult. Yeah, but they're so rich though. Well, you know, there's, there's so much money. There's more than money. Will is there? You're wearing a Bernie Sanders sweater, so you know. Yo, about d- it. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell the people of the pod that um well that's true i am but um okay cool so uh any any other parts you want to see adapted or was that mainly it no that was mainly it okay cool you didn't pick up on the cow castration i did i did pick up on it. i just yeah. decided to move on that's move right past it so yeah. that was a little much for me that was on the first page yeah it was good it was good stuff first page it was great started off with a bang or a snip whichever one <laughs> Um, and then Eric, did you like reading this, reading the story? I, um, I like this book. Okay. I thought the plotting was really strong and I thought the prose was purple, but also like interesting. Um, what do you mean by purple? Just like luscious and like natural and they really like go for it. Mm -hmm. Just like description. Okay. Rather than being like very... I don't know, another, I was going to say like muscular, but very like, like there's like the Hemingway where it's just like literally tell them what they need to know, or there's flowery, descriptive, Mm -hmm. the mountains looked like X, Y, Z, as Phil stared at them and thought about Bronco Henry. Gotcha. I just wanted to clarify for the non-English majors out there. Yeah. And myself, of course. Purple prose. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I like to find, um, I did think there were a lot of parts in this book that were kind of meandering. Like you would open a Mm -hmm. chapter and it would be like two or three pages about something that was totally not related to the plot. And that's not necessarily like a bad thing, but it was all a lot of these like red herring moments where we just sort of like flowed through the world, which, you know, maybe brought in the world, maybe it was like off topic Mm -hmm. before we circled back to like the thing we needed to see. And I, it's just like, it's a, what, 250 page, 300 page book that I Mm -hmm. feel like actually reads a little bit shorter than that in terms of like what happens and the the story that at the heart Mm -hmm. of the book, like the, 
you know, familial loggerheads between the Burbanks and the Gordons and what happens. So just for like, I feel like it puts you off the scent a lot with a lot of just like refusing to tell you the story. It it like moved around. It did move around um, a lot. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the main reasons I was not able to finish was because of like this prose. I am like a person who just like, I barely got through on the road. Um, or maybe I didn't, I can't even remember at this point. It's like a very much prose heavy, like you said. Um, so if that's for you, which I'm sure a lot of English majors like, like probably enjoy that kind of thing. But if you're like a normal reader like me, who likes action, characters, movement, not a lot of movement. Not, for you. not a lot of yeah. movement for sure. So you struggled. Was it's just like I could basically only read like maybe ten to fifteen pages at a time, and I just had to put it down. Um, or there would be where there would be portions where my mind would wander when I was reading because I was just not interested. And then I, I, that happened so much that like I sort of just lost track of the story. Um, and for me. Like, I really need to be, as someone who's not an avid reader, I need to be sucked in. Um, it's hard for me to push through things, which I don't necessarily enjoy. So You're a big Marvel guy. You just need constant <laughs> punching and action and colors and flashing I'm lights. A, I could be described as a Marvel reader, yes. <laughs> I, could, I would accept that. An A24 watcher, but a Marvel reader. Yes, exactly. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, I just thought, like... Ultimately, we got pulled too much from the interesting stuff for reasons of, like, you know, flexing your quill. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> but I liked cool. it. I definitely liked it. Yeah, cool. Um, so we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to get into the movie and the adaptation and what was good, what was bad, and what was beautiful. Be right back. And we are back. Thank you for that brief word from whoever that was. Okay, Eric. We are going to continue a little um, segment here that the people have enjoyed, and myself included, where Eric learns you something. Um, It's going to be something, not really sure yet, but it's going to be something from the book that uh, or the movie that um, maybe we don't know that much about. Maybe we're going to learn some more in-depth knowledge and details. Eric, would you like to tell us what it is? Today, Will, we're talking about genre. So, Ooh. as we mentioned earlier, the Western was the 
main form of Hollywood storytelling for the better part of three decades, basically, from the 30s to the 60s. But, you know, if you look through the history of the Western, the first movie Western in America, um, The Great Train Robbery, I think, came out in, like, 1903, 1906. So really going back, like, 120 years. Um, Some will argue that the genre died when Mel Brooks made Blazing Saddles in the 1970s, 1975 or so, uh, because there was not a good Western made again until... Clint Eastwood came out with Unforgiven, which is sort of an anti-Western in 1991. I'm simply a student, not a scholar, so don't take what I'm saying for truth. But, you know, go watch Blazing Saddles because it's great. Anyway, um, this form has made somewhat of a return in recent years, like we mentioned earlier in the episode. Films like The Harder They Fall, Hateful Eight, Hell or High Water, even Yellowstone on TV, I think is one of the most popular TV shows running right now. So um, the Western is back question mark and with any genre there are popular tropes so i was hoping to talk through a few of those please um as the captain of the obvious club the most obvious marker of a western is its location um i think the first filmed western was not actually american but uh since then the western genre has really taken place in the western part of these united states um and it's the reason for that is because it is this unexplored, <clears throat> unsettled land where nobody lives that the typically white characters could get lost, test their mettle against nature or other um, antagonistic forces, typically Native Americans. Um, yeah, the politics of the, the Old Westerns are, are not great if you are viewing them from a 2022 lens, absolutely. Um, but they are these sort of like simple morality tales where you pit good versus bad um often it's a lone man facing a trying circumstance and working to overcome it and very often he does with the help of nobody because he is a man and he's better than all the other folks of course i don't write the movies uh, this is just what it, this is what it is <laughs> there uh as a sidebar if you've ever seen the movie high noon um it is I think on the AFI top 100 list, it stars Gary Cooper came out in like 1951. It's like a 90 minute movie about uh, a sheriff who is quitting to like go marry his wife. And then he realizes that these three like bullies, their leader got out of prison and is coming back to the town where Gary Cooper is the sheriff to basically kill Gary Cooper. So Gary Cooper goes around the whole movie asking for help from the townspeople and all the townspeople are like, no, I'm not helping you. That guy's scary. Like, you can fuck off. <laughs> and at the end, the four bad guys come to the town, and Gary Cooper is just by himself with his gun. And he ends up winning because his wife comes back and shoots one of the bad guys for him. And you can read about this, but, like, people who like Westerns very much did not like this Western because the woman helped the man at the end. And that's not how Westerns were. So wow. go find that on the film blogs. Wow. Um, but it was definitely a thing. So other common settings tropes ideas you know westerns typically set in the wild west where drinking prostituting playing cards killing are all just sort of the norm and um when that's the case often like we talk about the enemy in westerns as nature or native americans but um it can also be civilization the slow creep of wilderness being tamed and these wild men having to face their uh actions in a more formed society that's kind of it um 
I would suggest people go watch Stagecoach, which is, I think, the, like, proto-Western. Came out in 1939. John Ford, John Wayne. Um, it's the granddaddy of them all. But it's basically, this plot, plot is a bunch of strangers hop into Stagecoach and have to cross Apache territory to get where they're going. And, uh, you know, the Native Americans raid the Stagecoach and they have to fight their way to get where they're where they're going. There's a really cool action scene where uh, they the, the fight happens and somebody basically like climbs under the stagecoach and goes under all the horses and the wheels. And then uh, there's a really famous close-up of John Wayne that basically made him a movie star. So a little movie history for you there. Very cool. <clears throat> so I assuming, I'm assuming the Fast and Furious 7 stole that scene where they go under the semi-truck from this movie. Basically. Wow. What a bunch of thieves. That's yeah. horrible. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's the Western. It's um, I guess it's coming back in in a slightly different form, uh, because more people can be heroes than just white men. Who knew? Will did you know that? <laughs> I did not, and now I'm educated. I've only seen movies from the 1940s, and I, for one, did not know. Yeah, my uh, so I was I was gonna say um, you did not include the Revenant. Oh yeah, sure. Revenant is a, a is a Western. Little Unspod. Yeah. So. I thought that's that's part of the our blacklisted episodes. Is that our <laughs> Yeah, we're really mean to the writer in that one. I think so. Yeah. Don't go listen to that. Oh yeah, that's true. Sorry Michael, about that, Michael Punk. Punk, Punky. Yeah. Anyways, um, well, thank you for that. Appreciate it. A little background on what a Western is, where it comes from, and why it's relevant to this story. Um, I think that will help people get some extra context on what we're about to say. So. With that said, a little segue for you. Eric, how would you describe the adaptation? Was it literal, loose, or reimagined? I give this a literal stamp. This movie is almost the exact same as its source material. Obviously, there are some cuts. There's one really big cut that we're going to talk about in a second. But overall, these are very, very similar. Um, and of course, if you've heard about this movie, you know that it has a, not famous is not the right word, but it has a, uh, big twisty ending. So if you don't want that spoiled, maybe don't listen to the rest of this conversation. But, um, a lot of that was imported from the book. So for me, it gets a, a big L for literal. Capital L for you. Yes, it was. It was very literal. And yes, we will talk about the one glaring difference. Um, Eric, would you like to tell us what that was? Yeah, so we've mentioned him today, uh, good old John Gordon. He is not in this movie at all. Um, John, as a reminder, is Rose's first husband. Rose is played by Kirsten Dunst. Um, and he is also the father to Peter, who's played by Cody Smith McPhee. And he features uh, extremely prominently in the first quarter of the book. And he is played as a sort of parallel to Phil Burbank. They both get these like introductory chapters that chart their rise and like their adolescence plus like early adulthood, what they're up to, how they survive, how they meet different people. Um, we get to see John's love story with Rose, his rise as a doctor and his eventual suicide, which we mentioned um, a little bit earlier. He is not in this movie at all. And quite frankly, he is only mentioned like once or twice. Um, Peter tells Phil at a certain point that his dad had committed suicide four years ago, I think it was, and 
think a lot of people in town knew that. And then at some point he, Peter goes to visit his grave, um, John's grave. Uh, so that is a, a big difference because it has mm-hmm. like earth shattering effects to what happens in the movie in my estimation. Um, we mentioned how John dies in the book, which is this confrontation with Phil, George, Burbank bros, mm-hmm. Burbank boys, just generally. Um, yes. The confrontation sends him on a spiral of drink and depression, and he ultimately hangs himself. Now, um, in the book, this deterioration at the hands of the Burbanks um, pretty well parallels Rose's deterioration at the hands of Phil. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also this sort of inflammatory moment where we see Phil as a killer, quite frankly, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm taking the narrative jump and saying that Phil was the killer. So it's this moment where we see Phil as this killer and Peter as his father's Avenger. Um, we don't exactly know if John told Rose or Peter about the confrontation with Phil, but, um, we, the reader know, and, it ultimately serves to link the Burbank and Gordon families at the hip. When that happens, like their paths are impossibly tied forever. Yeah. Yes. And I I also wanted to mention that um, you have sort of this uh, father son dynamic, which was quite sweet in the, in the book, which you could tell that he was, you know, the son was raised properly. Um, it was a big loss, especially for the son who actually found his father, who uh, found his father dead, uh, hanging from a rope uh, in a room in the house, and and actually cut him down as well, which is quite a dramatic scene, right? For somebody who's, I think, I can't remember how old he was, but I think he was maybe 11 or 12 uh, in the book at the time. Um, and in the movie, there's only one brief mention, I think, by Phil who basically snarks that why would his brother George marry a suicide widow? Something to that effect. Basically them mentioning, oh, that's what happened to the father. Because we're basically given no context at all about John Gordon, um, except for that. Yeah, it's true. And in the moment before he dies, there he John <laughs> imparts um, the word... I, I, I don't have the exact quote, but it's like... Um, be kind, Peter, like, and like kindness is removing obstacles in front of other people, mm-hmm. which becomes like pretty relevant as the plot goes on. Yeah. Um, so by not having John, you know, quote unquote, die at the hands of the Burbanks, it, it changes some things in the movie just by virtue of its omission. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing, you know, the families are no longer star crossed. There's no, you know, when Rose, I, I th- it's it's less clear that they're on a crash course. It, and I think that helps the eventual twist ending land a little bit more because mm-hmm. it's Peter is no, and you're gonna we're we're into spoilers here, but like Peter is no longer an Avenger. Peter is something else. Right. So that's one, two, and jump in when you want to pick up on some of these characters, will because I have a lot to say. Um, <laughs> will do. But two, I think it allows Rose to be a little bit more active in the plot rather than have Phil, you know, kill her husband and then have to 
marry George Burbank because she needs the money, mm-hmm. yada, yada. Um, her husband has been dead for four years and she's able to meet George on her own terms and they can have their own love story. And you get a sense that like this relationship is real. It's not the offshoot of George feeling bad that his group of dudes killed her husband. Yes. I mean, that is a, that is a pretty, I guess it doesn't really change from Rose's perspective, right? Like, well, she gets more agency, right? Yeah. But she's she's no longer a pawn. True, but, like, her character doesn't know the difference, right? So, like, the way Kirsten Dunst plays it is probably the same as if she was, you know, if, if John Gordon was in, included in the story. But, but yeah, she's less of a pawn and she's less of a, you know, there's less drama for that connection. Um, and it seems like a worthy omission that we don't, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts on why this was, you know, essentially removed from the film um it feels like this would be a great sort of connector yes and it's it's interesting because like for me one of the failings of the book is that this is never like resolved like i mean ultimately i suppose it is resolved but there's no she never realizes that phil did this Mm -hmm. um so if you're going to put it in the movie it's going to be obvious who does this, right? You're going to see Phil push this guy, punch this guy, whatever he does, you're going to mm-hmm. see that. And you're going to know that Phil did this in the book. You can probably, you can, he did obfuscate who's doing what. And so you don't exactly know it's Phil and we can get away with like, okay, well, one of these dudes did something bad, but if, as soon as you put it on the screen and you can see it, then that kind of changes everything. And I mm-hmm. think for Phil, it keeps him from becoming a monster, right? Like we, we know he's an asshole. He is an asshole, but it, it, it's short of him being a murderer. And I think that is important because what you're ultimately trying to do with this book is tell the story of a guy who has had this like repressed life experience. And because of those, like he's essentially like repressing himself from his sexual urges and everything he does in his life is sort of the result of not wanting to be looked at as gay, right? Mm -hmm. Like he doesn't bathe. He uh, is the best at writing because his quote unquote lover, you know, 25 years ago taught him how to ride, taught him how to play, Mm -hmm. taught him how to do all these things. And everything he does is a way to hide who he is. Like he just wants to be dirty all the time because that's what real men are. Like he gets mm-hmm. a cut on his hand when he's castrating the bull and he doesn't get it cleaned up because that's what men do. You know, he, he gets injured, he, whatever. He, he just like doesn't do certain things because he thinks they'll make him appear less than the man he wants to be or thinks he should be kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, that sucks. Right. And this is a, a story about that. But the moment you make him, like kill somebody because he is like personally sad. I think you step over a line in that, like it's no longer, I no longer feel bad for you, Phil, because you took out your anger on ruining someone else's life. And I think that's just a, a bridge a little bit too far for readers in the audience to like ultimately sympathize with him. Yeah. I mean, it's also for a reason, like a pretty dumb reason, right? At least for audience audiences today to sort of sympathize with I mean, the reason that he makes fun of him and, you know, sort of pushes him and beats him up is because he has a sissy son or, you know, to his point of view, he has a homosexual son. And like, 
in this day and age, you can't really sympathize with something like that. Um, or, you know, sort of spin it to have sympathy. But I wanted to mention, as you were um, talking through that just now, um, how Phil has this hyper-masculinity. And he has to sort of... It's it's a basically a facade. He basically needs to build himself up um, so that nobody ever, at any moment, will ever uh, think that he is even remotely homosexual, right? He needs to be the most masculine man of the group so that he's somebody that nobody will ever question his true nature. And it reminded me of Moonlight, and it's sort of a similar story in that regard. If anybody's seen it, um, go watch it. It's sort of the same sort of thing where somebody's struggling with their identity. So instead of accepting their identity, they go in the the complete opposite direction, essentially. Um, Just wanted to mention that. That's true, yeah. Uh, The character, what's his name? He gets, like, super buff. Yeah. Um, I can look. Tyrone. I, I don't remember. Tyrone. Yeah. Yes. Tyrone. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That's a good. That's a good linkage. Will. Yeah. What can I say? I'm an A24 um, guy. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. Yeah. There is a moment early on in the movie. I think it's within like the first two minutes. George is who's played by Jesse Plemons is taking a bath, and he's like, "Gee whiz, Phil, these baths are great. Have you ever taken a bath in this tub?" And he's like, "No, I have not." Yes. Yeah. And it's like his his refusal to just like smell good and look good and look be clean mm-hmm. is uh you know kind of his downfall it's we'll also it also that for that anecdote he only takes baths in this one spring right or one creek or river whatever it is in this one hidden place where him and Bronco henry used to you know do whatever they did um we, it sort of insinuated that they had a homosexual relationship um and that they would going to this place, this location, uh, that was relatively hidden, actually, somehow, in the woods. Um, and that he would only bathe there for, you know, maybe a week or two at a time. Um, so he, I think also there's that aspect of him not wanting to tarnish that location and the memories of that location by taking a bath in, like, a house or something. Yeah, it's a sacred place for him, that, yeah. like, pond stream area. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last thing I wanted to mention on the omission of John is kind of touched on it, but like the idea that when John dies at the hands of Phil and we're, you know, there's some leaps we're making here, like Mm -hmm. whatever, like we get the sense that Phil did this. Peter can become his Avenger. He can avenge his father's death. Life for a life. Hammurabi's code. Mm -hmm. Um, When you remove that, but keep the same ending you almost create a monster out of Peter. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, but like one of the main dramatic questions in this movie is just what kind of adult is Peter going to become? Will he be kind? Will he be strong? Will people, will he let people get the better of him because he's not, you know, quote unquote normal? Um, Will he end up like Phil who loved once many years ago and has tried to run from that feeling and that person he is ever since? Mm-hmm. Um, the minute Phil kills John, it sets up this like Phil Peter connection and they run parallel, right? Like sexually, you know, as both gay men, they are the same in that regard. And personally they have to make a choice of like, are you going to live as that? Or like Phil does repress it. So the question is like, what is Peter going to do? 
And what Peter eventually does is kill Phil. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, and when he does that, you could take it as like, is that is that over the line? Is that a monstrous move to... There's And the, the opening... There's a lot more context probably needed. We should probably offer here. But at the opening of the movie, there is a Peter voiceover where he basically says that everything he does in life is to protect his mother. And we just mentioned the quote about like obstacles and how removing obstacles is for others is like the key to kindness. Well, you make the same read that like his mother's obstacle is Phil who makes her life hell. His, his created an alcoholic is like really going to kill her probably if he, if they continue to like share the same house and uh, Peter being the smart fella he is figures out a strategy to basically kill Phil without anybody knowing it was him a very clean murder uh, but murder nonetheless and mm-hmm. so I ask you Will justified? Um, so justified in the book or the movie? movie can you get behind Peter's decision to kill Phil? yes definitely um, so at first I thought, you know, when I first was watching, uh, my initial reaction was, wow, this kid is like way more monstrous than I thought, because, you know, you get, you get the inclination as you're watching that this kid is certainly not normal because, you know, he finds rabbits and other, uh, animals that he cuts open because he's, you know, practicing for his doctoral exam, you know, to go to... That's what they all say, dude. <laughs> They're all like, yeah, I'm, I'm just cutting a rabbit to see what it looks like on the inside. Yeah, it's know. like, is this kid really doing this? Or is he like, is there something wrong with him? And so when that happened, when he when adding, had this diabolical plan to kill Phil, um, I thought, okay, this kid is a monster. Like, he is a murderer, a cold-blooded killer. And then I thought, you know, well, you know, the reason his mother was going through all these issues especially the alcoholism was because of her fear of Phil. Like she was literally just afraid and she was so incredibly self-conscious um, whenever he, you know, he was around that she could not basically function um, normally that, you know, he, and obviously he noticed that. And so he sort of like seduced Phil in a way into becoming friends with him into a mentor and then eventually learn him close enough to, you know, infect him with in, uh, anthrax so it is this weird line where it's, it's certainly a debate I think he certainly has like dissociative tendencies to like be um, cruel right but clearly I think clearly he did it for his mother so that's my take yeah I asked the psych major to diagnose this kid. So that's, that was a good question for you. Um, I think it, I think it is like, I certainly don't view him as a monster. I think an interesting question to pose is soon as we like in the third act of this movie, um, Phil who throughout the movie has been like, you know, asking his guys if they can see anything in the mountains that are outside the Burbank ranch. And the only people that have ever seen anything in the mountains, like metaphorically, is him and this guy Bronco Henry who mentioned was this like terrific cowboy who taught Phil everything he knew from riding to riding and um they were able to see something and then later in the movie you know he asks Peter if he can see anything in the mountains and Peter can and if he can see the same thing 
all three of those guys can see the same thing. Mm-hmm. So it's this moment where, and I think we probably need to unpack this a little bit more. It's a moment where Phil kind of recognizes something in Peter. Like he, I think he at that point realizes that like they're actually kind of kindred in a, in a certain way. And it starts this relationship between the two of them where mm-hmm. Phil kind of takes him under his wing. They don't do anything sexually, but it's like he teaches him how to ride a horse and how to do other things around the ranch. Mm-hmm. And thinking about it now, I'm wondering if like both, certainly Peter is like playing along, right? Like Peter doesn't need this relationship and he's doing it to sort of throw Phil off the scent of um, something that he's doing, like, you know, getting anthrax ready to kill Phil. But I'm wondering if like, on Phil's end, is that relationship genuine? Does he actually want to get close to Peter? And not groom is the wrong word because there's certain connotations with that, but like help him along the path to adulthood? Or is he also just using Peter to get to his mother? Or does he think he can use Peter to turn on Rose to make her life, like have everyone around her Mm -hmm. completely disassociate with her? Yeah, I think it's, there's certainly an aspect to that. I think the motivations for each of these characters are wildly different. I think that um, Phil's motivation is because he sees something, like you said, very you know, interesting within Peter. He's clearly, um, he's clearly homosexual. He is clearly hyper-intelligent. Um, so there are these two characteristics that are immediately comparable to him, Phil. Because he went to, I can't remember, I think he was like an Ivy Leaguer. He was, he's always been described as like incredibly intelligent and all this. Yeah, he went to Yale. He went to Yale. So, and I kind of think that he wanted to groom him. He saw himself in Peter and he wanted to sort of let Peter have the same experience to sort of bring him along because he's relatable to him. Um, and, you know, Phil is not somebody who is going to sort of take anybody under their wing. And I think that was the only reason, essentially, to sort of bring him under the wing. is because he's relatable. He can sort of show him the way. And as well, sort of distance him from his mother. Because he's, no, he's got no reason to like, um, to like Rose. And from, his, from the other perspective of Peter, I think, you know it's clear that he had this plan maybe he didn't have this plan for from the beginning but he had this plan for a long time where he saw the anthrax cow infested cow whatever infected cow and took his shot right essentially just or just waited for a shot but i think he also saw value in hanging out with phil not just to seduce him to eventually kill him but he also saw value in learning how to you know be a ranch hand and how to do things that you can maybe, that he wouldn't basically learn from anybody else. Certainly not George and certainly not his mother. So I think it's like sort of two advantages for Peter in that regard. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, you know, Peter is trying to get his, Phil's guard down and he succeeds in doing that. Um, it is interesting to think like, if both sides of this are bullshit, then you kind of don't feel it doesn't make it makes the killing more tolerable because you know that all, Phil actually doesn't care for Peter. He's just using him to fuck with Rose more because 
he can turn Peter against her. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, then it's like, okay, well, you don't care about this kid who you actually could help, yeah, yeah. but you're just choosing to use him to fuck with Rose, who you hate, who you think is stealing money from the family, <laughs> even though she's not. You just right. hate that she's around. I was actually, when I was watching it, I was actually thinking and hoping that Peter would eventually, like, make Phil a good person, if that makes any sense. Because he was becoming more likable, more sympathetic as the movie went on with Phil, or I'm sorry, with Peter. But I thought maybe that would translate to his mother and George and other people maybe, you know, had this revelation that he would actually just become a good person. But of course that didn't happen. Uh <laughs> Yes. Yeah, you're right because he could do that, or you. Mm-hmm. It's like that's po- it's a possible outcome because mm-hmm. a Phil is still redeemable to you, right? Because he right. Ha- is not a murderer. Right. 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 Um, Good point. But then two, it's just like by not doing that for you know Peter. Peter could try, but ultimately he he's trying to kill Phil, and by doing that, does it make him? more like Phil that he's acting in this like self preservation acting out a sense of self preservation, right? Because he's, he's killing Phil to save his mother and him because if Phil is Mm -hmm. still around, his mom is probably going to die. And if his mom is dead, then Peter probably is going to be in trouble as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, for self preservation purposes, it would make sense for him to sort of take him out before anything got worse. Um, because when, especially when Rose gave away the, um, the rawhides to the Native Americans, you know, shit was, it looked like shit was about to hit the fan, essentially, um, especially for Rose, but it didn't, but you could see how, you know, them living together would eventually lead to something, you know, super dramatic and maybe ultimately in death, um, and Phil being the hyper-intelligent person that he is can probably see, have that foresight. Right. So, yeah, it is. Peter. It is interesting that he never liked Rose at all. It's like the first time they met, he's like, I think you're I think you're uh, I forget what he said, but basically, like, I, th- I just think you're stealing money. I think you're like a yeah. cheap, a cheap yeah. person who's stealing from us. Fuck well, off. He's, yeah, he's somebody in the book and the movie where who he, he just has an idea about every person. Like he's incredibly judgmental from the get go. And he yes. already has an opinion about you based on whether you're a woman or a Native American or whatever. Um I forget there's a term for that. I mean, obviously, like, racist or sexist, but, like, I think there's an overarching term for all that put together, but that I'm forgetting. But, um, yeah, he clearly has thoughts about groups of people and that he doesn't really care what you think about it. He's going to sort of... That's sort of his self-preservation, in a sense. It's like, I'm not going to let you do something bad to me because of something I think about your people. And, you know, it's it's obviously closed-minded thinking for somebody who's so intelligent, but... Unfortunately, that's the way it is yeah. with him. He's guarded. He's very guarded. Yeah. Um, okay. The other big difference I want to talk through is the Bronco Henry of it all. Yes. Um, so this is a character who exists in both the book and the movie. And we've alluded to him. Um, he is this former ranch hand who has since died, who had a really big impact on Phil. Um, it's certainly insinuated as subtext that they had a relationship um but more than that just like being a ranch or rancher like bronco henry had a huge impact on phil in that way mm-hmm. um and like we just mentioned only three people have seen the dog in the mountains and one of them is bronco henry mm-hmm. phil um you know when he goes to bathe 
thinks about Bronco Henry. It's just, there are these moments where we are connecting like like like-minded people with Bronco Henry as the sort of like connective tissue. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think how we realize that him and Bronco Henry had a relationship, even though it's not out and out said or out and out shown. Yeah. It's pretty clearly insinuated. I mean, I think that it is sort of an objective, like on, you can't really argue against it. Um, but I mean, it's pretty similar. I mean, one of the things that I think you said earlier is that the book, it was even like, it was like sub subtext, right? It was not, it was very unclear. Uh, and then you could easily read, read over that. Um, but in the movie, it's a little more literalized, a little more clear to pick up on those subtle cues. Um, is that something that, I mean, that you kind of have to do for a movie or, what do you think? I think I think the power of this movie is knowing that something happened um, without knowing exactly what that is. It sort of just keeps the memory alive. It keeps the moment alive. It keeps the connection alive. And I mean, goddamn, he's he talks about Bronco Henry all the time in this yeah. movie. Every yes. single chance he has to bring that man's name up, he does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, He's always the person who first taught Phil this or that, and he's the reason why Phil's just the best at things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think it, it behooves of the movie because it's a visual medium. You have to show something, right? Something has to be seen. Right. And they do a really, I think, clever job of, like, showing you without showing you. So mm-hmm. there is the moment where Phil, you know, has this, like, memorial built to Bronco Henry in his barn. It's his like former saddle Mm -hmm. that sits in front of a plaque of Bronco Henry's like birth and death dates. And when he, I think what happens is um, Rose and George are having sex in the other room and he Phil gets up out of his bed, goes to the barn and just like vigorously cleans this saddle. Yeah. And it's like, it's kind of like presented as this like, it, it kind of looks phallic right and the, so the way he's cleaning mm-hmm. it is you know make your own conclusions but yeah sexual um, innuendo for sure like it is uh suggestive is mm-hmm. is what the kids call it um and then later he goes to his pond where he goes to clean himself with a piece of cloth or clothing that i think bronco henry used to have um and basically like sniffs it while he masturbates in a clearing yeah it's got his initials bh on either the cloth or the clothing. So it's like pretty clear that yeah, it was his. So like those two things, I think tell you pretty conclusively that like they had a relationship um, yeah. and it was more than just like a teacher student or mm-hmm. I guess in some ways it, it you know, teacher student applies all in all ways, but um, certainly the relationship was, was sexual mm-hmm. more. Yeah. More than just teacher, I would say. Yeah. I, and I think that, Bringing the Phil Bronco of it to the fore gives the Phil Peter burgeoning connection in the last third a little bit more power because you better understand that like what Bronco did for Phil is what Phil could do for Peter. And it's ultimately like up to Peter to say yes, because we know that Phil said yes. So it's like what is it, it like makes the question obvious like Mm -hmm. is peter going to say yes to his bronco henry i like the way you phrase that 
So that was nice. That's how I feel about that. But I, I like the liter. I liked literalizing it a bit more without out and out flashing back to 1903. Phil Bronco Henry go to this clearing and we show that, and then we come back to the present. I sort of like him as a as a, a memory and not as a person. Now, do you think that making it more literal in the movie is is more of a reflection on? the two different mediums or do you think it's more a reflection on the time that these things were released? Well, I mean, they, I don't think they, certainly like in the 1960s, you couldn't have Benedict Cumberbatch in the, you know, clearing masturbating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it's like pretty low key still. Like it's still pretty not there. Like there's no scene of them having sex, right? There's no scene of anyone having sex. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's, it's remembered. Um, I think it's more of a function of a film. It had to show something because it's not enough for him to be like laying on his bed, like sniffing that cloth or whatever. Like just like holding the cloth. Mm -hmm. That's not quite enough because you don't, you just wouldn't know. It's not, I don't think it would tell you enough. If that makes sense. Like, I think you need the suggestion or the linkage of, like, you know, masturbating while holding the cloth. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of subtle cues, like the phallic cleaning of Bronco Henry's saddle, the uh, phallic, like, nature and showing up close, up close hands of, of the rope, right? The way he's, like messing with the ropes and tying the ropes together um, while Peter and Phil are in the, in the barn and there are other ones as well. But yeah, I think it, you're right. I think they do. You do sort of need that. Like, are they, is he okay? Now he is right. You need that moment of like, okay, my uh, thoughts and my assumptions have been sort of concluded essentially. Yeah. And Um, he talks about him enough that you get the sense that like he's important, but we're not, exactly sure how important until we get the like literalized like oh okay now mm-hmm. now i get it and that like turns the whole phil character into like okay this guy acts the way he is because he feels like he can't act the way he is yeah yeah so shout out bronco henry yeah he is all over this movie absolutely yes. um Okay, so those are the two main differences. Is there another anything else you wanted to mention before we move on? As far as differences go, no, I don't think so. I think those okay. two have the largest impact on the story. You know, we could say this movie was filmed in New Zealand and not Montana. They're not authentic mountains, but yeah. By the way, like, I was gonna say those mountains looked way too high to be like Montana. Yeah, they are like, pretty big. They're wild. They are. I didn't realize New Zealand had such tall mountains, but it did look. It had Lord of the Rings vibes, right? Like yeah. they were just so mountainous that it almost like was too much, I thought. Like it was like, this is definitely not the West <laughs> coast of the United States. Yeah. Only other thing I would mention now that I'm thinking about it is that we I talked about like how John and Rose got their like love story at the beginning of the book. Without John, they sort of reapplied that to George and Rose. Like they got mm-hmm. their love story we got to see them like picnic together and have a good time and george is like i'm so lonely i really can use you as a companion and a wife and yada yada so i think Mm -hmm. that was nice to have because it showed 
versus the book, like, you know, George feels bad and starts a relationship that just ends in a very quick marriage. This, in the movie, um, they seem to like each other just a little bit more. And I think it mm-hmm. makes uh, everything else a little bit better. That they that, that their marriage is real, I think, is important. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, I would agree. And I have nothing to add. So well done. Yeah. Um, so Eric, why are the book and movies so similar? Is there a reason for that? I think the, the story is plotted like a movie in a a certain sense. Like it does, it does a job of saying, you know, on page five, Phil doesn't clean himself on page six anthrax, you know, is a animal born virus, whatever, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. I'm not a doctor that can infect like humans if they aren't careful. Right. So there is like, there are these moments in the book that sort of like breadcrumb bigger plots later on. Mm -hmm. I think like, well, that's part of it. Right. Like I think it, it is, it is a movie that, knows exactly where it's going or his book that knows exactly where it's going. And it is like very tightly plotted to set up something that becomes important later on. And there are moments of like meandering prose that we talked about, but like the important things, you know, page five, you get this information that on page 90 pays off. And it's just like, is a perfect sort of like parallel movement that like if i'm telling you something here it's going to pay off there and if you read a script it's like every word in a script has importance because there's not that many of them so yeah there's no fat right it's all no what's the i don't know the phrasing i was gonna say no fat all filler but like everything is everything is propulsive it's lean it's lean and this book like not everything is propulsive but i think the important things that exist are both like propulsive and movie things because they are very visual and they are also like very tied to the themes of either the genre or the story where it's like anthrax is a natural element. So we're now we're in like man against nature or like masculinity, right? That's, that's something you can visualize. You can visualize someone braiding a rope that's infected with anthrax that infects this guy's open wound on his hand that he won't clean because he's too proud to be clean. And so it's like his decision to not clean himself is ultimately the reason why he is dying. It's this like his hidden him hiding himself is his failing Mm, basically. Um, I think I'm, I'm talking around the question, but I think they're so similar because everything you need in a movie is in the book there's it's all it's tight it's visual and it makes good thematic sense mm-hmm. you don't have to invent anything because he has done literally all of it he knows all of it so are we happy that it was jane campion to adapt this and not michael bay I don't, i've never seen another jane campion movie but i i thought this movie was pretty pretty great so was the adaptation successful i think so I think so. Um, And I thought the camera added a lot too, right? Like we talked about how the Mm -hmm. stories are very similar, but there is, there are really good moments where 
specifically like Phil is on top of Rose, like looking down at her, whether she's like in this little alleyway, like sipping mm. from a booze bottle that she hid and he's just looking down at her and like whistling at her. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there's a moment where we talked about gub- gubernatorial earlier. Uh, George <laughs> invites Montana's governor to come to dinner along with his parents and Rose, who used to play piano for the movies, is practicing piano. And there's a scene where she's practicing piano alone. Phil comes in and just starts like plucking his banjo. He doesn't, he picks up what she's playing just by hearing it and just starts playing his banjo better than she can play the piano. Yeah. And every time she stops, he stops. Every time she starts, he starts. And she's like kind of annoyed by this, but she keeps going on. And then at some point he comes out of his room, which is on the second story, and he's like looking down at her playing piano. Mm-hmm. And he just fucking lays it down right in front yeah. of her. And it's just like, fuck you. Anything you do, I'm doing it better. And yeah. you're like a waste of space, a waste of talent. You're never going to be good enough to be in this family. Yeah. Yada, yada. Um, there's also cool like metaphorical elements. Like when Rose first comes to the house, it's really cold because it's unwelcoming oh, to her. And over time, she like tries to warm it up, but... You know, she cold. can't. Yeah, that's a that's a good pickup. Look at you. Yeah, you have. Did you study film or something? No, just uh, <laughs> just think, I'm just thinking about these things. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I think it's pretty self-explanatory. But um, did we like the movie? Yeah, I think this is my best picture. Oh baby. Um, and you're. It's only January. You got like a, two months, right? You're gonna call it already. I think so. There's a couple that I haven't seen. Like, we're going to talk about Macbeth. I don't know that that's necessarily in the race. Like, Belfast is a movie people like. Mm-hmm. Um, haven't seen that. Coda, haven't seen. West Side Story, haven't seen. But I think this movie is fucking the bomb. And I would encourage people to see it on Netflix. Yes, it is very, very, very accessible. Did you like I this see- movie? Yes, I did. I was pleasantly surprised. I, you know, like we've mentioned before this is not my genre this is not a movie i would have seen otherwise likely um but yeah i enjoyed it very very much i thought it was very good uh for all the reasons that you mentioned um as well as you know some of the you know i i was actually very skeptical of like benedict cumberbatch doing his thing as a western person and you know obviously he's well regarded as a very good actor and stuff and I don't know. I just like have this skeptic skepticism about him that I don't think he's like as good as people say. I think he's like overhyped, uh, but he was very, I mean, he was, he was amazing in this. And I, you know, if he wins back to act, best actor, I would not be surprised. Well, he can't win best actor because Will Smith's got it on lock, right? Oh, does he? I don't know. Good. That's <laughs> He should. Yeah, he should. But no, I, I very much enjoyed it. Um, okay. Hot takes. Eric, you go first. I my hot take is that I believe we should do what the CDC says and wash our hands, clean your cuts, and then live your best life. You know, if you just clean your cuts, you could go outside and touch anthrax, and it'll be fine. You know, you probably this don't want to come in close contact with anthrax, but you could do it. This is a great hot take. Yeah. Very timely. Yeah. Well done. Like really, it. this is a COVID movie. You know, it's about cleanliness. <laughs> it's about washing your hands. Yeah. And Actually, you when he anthrax. after he dies, there's a moment where. They show him in his, like, funeral box, and he is, like, shaved, and his hair is done, and he's, like, super-duper clean. It's like, this is the only time he's clean is in death. Ooh, interesting. So. Um, 
I my hot take is that I, I have officially joined the Cumberbitches, um, which is the fan group of Benedict Cumberbatch, if you're not familiar. So if you are a fan of his, you are a Cumberbitch, and now I am too, so... What are you going to watch next? Are you going to, are you going to dive into the Doctor Stranges? No, absolutely not. Although those are the those are the one Marvel movies I would think I would watch, because those have like a more sci fi element to it, right? It's like he he can warp time or something. Yeah. But they're just gonna fuck it up, aren't they? Well, they have one out that came out like four or five years ago, and the I think the next Marvel movie is actually Doctor Strange. So. I probably pass on that one. But you can't you're joining the cumber bitches and then immediately <laughs> you're you're I'm out. You're out, yeah. Yeah, I'm out. Um and then move your book. Movie. For me. Same here. No surprise. Uh and then final thoughts. What will we remember most? Just Bronco Henry. You know, if I ever hear that name again, I'm gonna think of this. And then also just like how often he called his brother Fatso, just for no reason. Yeah. It's just like, hey Fatso, like whatever you don't really hear that anymore but that was certainly something that was said to you know kids growing up it's like a bullying thing but i don't really hear that anymore probably because we're adults and people don't say that to each other because we're mature well relatively speaking also the Um, banjo just like absolutely crushing it crushing kirsten dunce he was pretty good yeah i wonder if he learned that himself probably not Probably not. Also, like, it's a cool scene because it, it gives you, like, a close-up on his hands, which are just, like, fucking dirty and gross. Yeah. There was actually... The, the, the braiding of the rope. There was a um, a sentence in the book that I highlighted that described his... The way he played the banjo was, like, a spider over uh, over the, the strings. Yes, yeah. Spider legs. I thought that was a perfect way to describe it because that's sort of what it looked like in the movie um but yeah so my hot or my uh final thought is that i will always remember phil whipping that horse that was just an incredibly like disturbing scene yeah it almost i mean it looked too real like i'm sure they said no no horses were harmed in this but like it looked like he was harming that horse pretty bad. Mentally, the horse was harmed. Yes, I was harmed. Watching yeah, that. that yeah, that was a little. It was a little aggressive. Yeah. Um, so, thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, um, we are going to sign off here on um, this episode. So check out our most recent one, which is driving my car, um, and then keep an eye out for the next episode, which is going to be on Nightmare Alley which is a Guillermo del Toro joint with Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, and some other people that I am forgetting, but supposed to be very good. And uh, like Power of the Dog, uh, full frontal male nudity in both films. So Is that right? Yeah. Have you seen it? No, but I've heard. I re- There's an article on the internet that I did With Bradley on, Cooper? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. You know that that was just released to get people to come to see it, right? But yeah, it's like the, the movie is not making business. Let's put this out there. <laughs> they actually re-released it. Um, it. The first cut was in color, and I think they just re-released it in theaters in black and white. Are you serious? So this movie what is... The uh, they're uh, struggling, I guess. Jesus. Wow. Okay, well, go see it, people. Yeah. Go read it, and then go see it. That's what we're going to do. Okay. Any shout-outs before we leave? Shout-out Anthrax. Like, who knew... Like we talked about it a lot in like 2002, 2003. It kind of kind of forgot about it. 
Um, and now it's back in the culture. So it is. It's back. I actually course. didn't know it was like a cow disease or like an animal disease. I yeah, know, I always. I don't know what I thought it was, but I always thought it was like a like a chemical that people just made in their basement and would stuff into envelopes and send it to the government. Yeah, because that's a, how it was. You know, mate, or how it was posited to me as a child in the early two thousands. Yeah. But yeah, shout out anthrax. Okay, cool. Well, that's gonna. Um, wrap it for us today and we will see you next time.